Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, as we continue our studies in the covenant, as we continue our studies specifically in the covenant of redemption, that pre-temporal, intra-Trinitarian agreement between Father, Son, and Spirit concerning the salvation of sinners in Christ. So Ephesians 1 certainly is a important text for that, verses 3 through 14, Paul's eulogy, Paul's blessing to God for the salvation of in Christ Jesus. And we see all three persons uh, in that triune work of God. So we'll read the entire section. We're just going to look at verses 13 and 14 this evening. So Ephesians chapter 1, begin reading at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have, have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We are thankful for the mission of the Holy Spirit. Thank that that one who was promised of old was poured out on the day of Pentecost, and that spirit works in the salvation of sinners to apply the benefits that Christ has purchased for us. And he is the one who strengthens us even now as we come before you to listen to your word, even as we sing, even as we pray. And we're thankful, O God, that we do have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that that spirit certainly is the seal uh, of God's people. Thank you, O God. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee or down payment for God's people until the redemption of the purchased possession. Thank you, O God, for this reality that we have the new creation, agent of new creation indwelling us now. And may this give us comfort and strength. May this give us assurance uh, as we walk this world, O God. We're in, we know that we are redeemed. We know that we are saved. We know, oh God, we long for the fullness. We long for the consummation. We long for all things to be made right. And we know, oh God, that that, that day shall come, that day of redemption in full shall come when Christ comes again. But until then, oh God, thank you for the spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your comfort as you prepare us, as you guide us, as you help us make our way to that celestial city and prepare our hearts for heaven. Thank you that we do not do so in our own strength, but in the redemption of Christ and the power of the spirit. So we ask, oh God, that you would strengthen us with might in the inner man. Now, as we come to your word 
give us illumination from on high. May, we, may you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. May our eyes be uh, enlightened. May we know what is the hope of our calling, uh, his calling, what are the riches of his, the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of your power. May we know these things as we come to your word. Strengthen your people, save sinners, and all things, O oh God, we pray that you be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as we've come to this blessed doctrine of the covenant of redemption, it is no surprise that it is a great mystery for God's people. The fact that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity is a great mystery of God's people. The fact that we confess God who is perfection has decreed all things that come to pass is a great mystery for us. And also this covenant of redemption, when it comes specifically to the salvation of sinners in Christ, is also a great mystery for us. And we see in the scriptures covenantal language concerning that revelation of God's, uh, to God's people about that salvation. Sam Renahan says, Scripture presents that eternal purpose and promise of salvation to mankind meta metaphorically in the mode of a covenant transacted between the persons of the Trinity. And there are many passages in Scripture that speak of this blessed covenant. Certainly Ephesians 1 is one of those texts or several of those texts. But again, Luke twenty two twenty nine, Jesus says, I bestow, as he's speaking to his disciples, I bestow our covenant to you a kingdom, just as the Father has covenanted one to me. And so we praise God for his revelation to us by way of covenant. And we've spent a long time in this Lord's Supper series on covenants, how God reveals himself to us. And before we turn to the covenant of redemption, we looked at the covenant of grace, how God enters into a covenant with his elect sinners because of the finished work of Christ. That is God, the gospel proclamation is covenant proclamation. But the way of that, uh, that, uh, that covenant offered in time and space, that covenant won in time and space, has an eternal foundation, namely this covenant of redemption in the Trinity. And this covenant of redemption really is a covenant of works for Christ, who would come down, live the law perfectly as the last Adam, die as that perfect sacrifice, and win himself a people that the Father would give to him. Now, there's a great mystery when it comes to this blessed doctrine, because it sounds like there's this plan that is deliberated between three different beings. But when we remember God is one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, that is not so. God's will is one. God's will is in threefold execution with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We must remember that God who is perfection, God who is essence itself, we must remember that his will is also unbound, undivided, and perfect. You see, when we consider something, we have to think about it. We think about it by acquiring knowledge. We think about it by pondering what it means and what that looks like. And that's how God reveals himself to us. But God in and of himself is absolute perfection. And so we must say that his will is his essence. I just want to correct something that I said last time that I think was a little awkward. I said, God is will. That's very awkward to say. But doesn't change the fact that God's will, the will of God is his essence, perfect, unbound, and undivided, even his plan of redemption, even the plan of creation. There's nothing added to God in the plan of creation and the execution of it. There is nothing added to God in the work of redemption, because God is perfect life in and of himself. He does not need our worship, yet, because we are the creature, we ought to give that worship 
unto him. And especially when we consider the plan in Christ. And so as we've gone through this section, we've looked at how the father plans. We've seen how the son accomplishes. And today we're going to see how the spirit applies. Now, all this when we consider the mission of God in time and space for the salvation of sinners, namely plan, accomplish, and apply, all that language reflects the eternal relations of origin, the Father unbegotten, the Son who is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. We see God reveal himself to us in the mission of the Son and the mission of the Holy Spirit, that he is one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And so tonight we're considering that mission of the spirit. What does the spirit do? How does the spirit operate? How does the spirit work when it comes to the salvation of sinners? And again, it's the triune plan of God, but we can consider the persons in the work of God to save sinners. And so in verses 13 and 14, Paul praises the father for the Holy Spirit, who is the seal and guarantee of redemption for believers. So let's unpack the spirit with respect to the salvation of sinners. And we'll look at this under two headings this evening. First of all, the seal of the spirit, verse 13. And secondly, the guarantee of the spirit, verse 14, or the down payment of the spirit, verse 14. So the seal of the Holy Spirit, verse 13, and then the down payment of the spirit in verse 14. So let's first look at the seal of the spirit in verse 13. So he's praised God and the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, like a father. We've seen the son who comes and takes on human flesh. And just as the father is working until now, so even so the son is working until now. Remember, it's the same God who works all things, even when it comes to the salvation of sinners Then we also as well see the spirit who is poured out, the spirit of the father and the spirit of the son. And so in verse 13, as we turn to consider the spirit, notice in him, in him, in him. That's been a continued refrain of the apostle Paul in this opening praise to God almighty in him. And who is he talking about there? He's talking about in Christ. So again, it is the plan of God, but it centers in around the work of that second person who takes on human flesh. Three persons are involved, but it is the mission of the son to take on human flesh for his people, to die and save his people uh, from their sins. But again, it is the work of God. And even too, when it comes to the sealing, even too, when it comes to the guarantee, it's in him. When it comes to predestination, it's in him when it comes to the redemption it is in him and the language of in him describes our union with our lord jesus christ that real and true union by the power of the spirit with the lord jesus christ i know two weeks ago pastor butler said union the union is perhaps the best benefit uh, that we receive and the reason i think he said that then he kind of backtracks but The reason we ought to highlight uh, how it could and ought to be the best benefit is because it undergirds every other benefit that we have by the power of the spirit. We have died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We have spiritual blessings in and around the in and because of the Lord Jesus Christ given and bestowed upon us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So those in hymns are very vital for our identity. We are in him. We are in Christ. We belong to him by the power of 
the spirit. And so in him, then he goes on to unpack what he wishes the Ephesians to understand. You also trusted after you heard the word of truth. Notice the recipients who received the spirit. You also trusted. And this goes with what is said in verse 12. He says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. When he says we first in 12 there, he's talking about the Jews. The we first who trusted in him should be to the praise of his glory. And then he transitioned to verse 13 to talk about the Ephesians in you also. What he's trying to do here is highlight who the new creation people are in Christ. And one of the things he will go on to talk about, really Ephesians is all about the new creation in Christ and who is the new creation people in Christ. He goes on to unpack in chapter two, when he says that in him, Christ is our peace, who has made both one, has broken down the middle wall of separation. There's no more ethnic distinction among the people of God. Neither Jew nor freak, slave nor free, male nor female. And he goes on to say in verses 19 through 22 of chapter 2 to talk about how Jew and Gentile come together to build the temple of the Lord. Christ is our temple, but Christ is our head and the church is his body. And he is the one who is building the temple of his dwelling between Jew and Gentile. And the agent in that primarily, again, it's one God who works all things, but we see this in, again, the mission of the Holy Spirit, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but we're going to talk about the Spirit of promise in verse 13. The Spirit of promise given to the Old Testament people applies to Gentiles? Gentiles who never had the oracles, who never had the prophecies like this, it's for them as well. In him, you also, not just us, but you as well, are part of the blessed new creation people. And notice he goes on to talk about the means, how when they've been sealed, how they receive the benefits. It starts with preaching. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, I know I ripped pretty good on preaching this morning. I'm not going to rehash everything I said today or this morning. But preaching is vital. Going back to Romans 10, with respect to how shall they hear, how believe unless they hear. How shall they hear unless someone is sent? How shall they, and then it it goes uh, so on and so forth. And we see this in Acts chapter 19. You see, Ephesus is an important church, isn't it, when it comes to the New Testament? I mean, a lot of the epistles, the, the, the city in which Paul writes to, is perhaps Ephesus. John, Gospel of John, certainly the book of Ephesians, certainly Paul to the letters to Timothy. Ephesians is an important place. In Acts chapter 19, the special thing about Ephesus is that the Spirit falls in an outward way in Ephesus in Acts 19. Remember I tried to highlight when we look at Acts 2, that when we see the Spirit poured out in that visible way, it's not so you and I have special gifts to speak in tongues, but it signifies the Messianic age has dawned. The eschatological age has dawned. The last days have dawned. The days of the Spirit have dawned 
in Christ. And notice it falls in the line of the plan of Acts, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Ephesus was considered the ends of the earth. As Paul went there, Saul disciples, and the Spirit falls upon them in that place. After they heard the word. After they heard the gospel. After they heard, as he said, the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. They were gripped by it. God is the author of it. And it's brought about by the triune work of God, the Father who plans, the Son who brings redemption in verse 7, and the Spirit who then applies these things in time and space. And one blessed thing to consider in relation of, uh, of all of this with the covenant of redemption, some people might think, well, that's Trinitarian, it's, it's all theoretical, it's just abstract, it's not very applicable. But think about that for a sec, that that language of the Father planning, the Son accomplishing, and the Spirit applies. What does that mean when sinners are saved? What does that mean when God's people grow in grace and knowledge day by day? What does that mean when someone who is, was once dead and is raised to life? It means the plan of God in eternity, accomplished by Christ in time and space, is applied by the Spirit and continues to be applied by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit goes forth. The Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit operates. The Holy Spirit is pointing sinners to Christ, those to whom the Father has given the Son, those to whom the Son has won. The Spirit is drawing them in by the Word and saving them in time and space. That is a blessed thing to consider how the God who does not change works in time and space to save sinners like you and I. It is through his preached word. You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. He goes on to say the response to that gospel in whom also having believed, having confessed, having believed it to be absolutely true. Again, something that is, uh, is given not just to Jew, but to Gentile as well. And this is something that Peter conveys in very similar language in Acts chapter 15. When he's talking about this reality, the Gentiles are believers. The Gentiles have come to the one true God. How can this be? And so Peter gets up at the Jerusalem council in verse 6, 7, and following. In verse 7, when there was, had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, Acts 10, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. They should hear it proclaimed and notice and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. This was promised of old, it's being, it was being applied. And the Jews struggled with that for a while, but they had to be reminded of the plan of God that includes an outpouring, not just for Jew, but Gentile as well, that in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And this is what Paul is trying to say in Ephesians. You've been brought in to be the people of God. You are the people of the new creation. Now live like 
the new creation in Christ and by the Spirit. And so after you heard the word, after it was proclaimed in time and space, after you believed by the power of the Spirit in time and space, notice, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, when it comes to the work and mission of the Holy Spirit, we certainly believe it's the Spirit who works in things like effectual calling. The Spirit is the one who works to give the gifts of faith and repentance. We believe all of those things. Unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says that to Nicodemus in John 3. The Spirit is working. There's also another blessed benefit. After you believe, you receive the Spirit. The Spirit indwells each and every one of God's people. The Spirit brings us to that blessed salvation. But after we believe, we have the Holy Spirit as a seal, whether we feel like it or not. So often, dear brethren, we forget that we have been sealed and been given that spirit as a down payment, as a first fruits of the resurrection. We have the agent of new creation who indwells each and every one of the people of God. And it says we've been sealed. And the language of seal carries the idea of being marked out by God. We've been given, he's highlighted who his people are by the spirit. And he has protected the, he's protecting his people as the owner. Uh, one writer goes on to say, this forms the basis for understanding the imagery, which speaks of those who entered the Christian community as being sealed with or by the Holy Spirit. He also uses this language in 2 Corinthians 1, and he also uses the down payment language in that passage as well, as well as 2 Corinthians 5. But the point is, God knows those who are his, and God seals those who are his with the, with the power, uh, with the Holy Spirit himself, indwelling each and every one of his people. And so he says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And as I've already gotten ahead of myself, again, we have to go back to places like Ezekiel 36, promising the spirit would remove the heart of stone and give hearts of flesh. The promise of the spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost, Joel chapter two, the spirit only was seen in drips and drops in the old Testament. Certainly as we saw in Galatians three, God still worked to save his people, save those who are truly his by the power of the spirit, but it really was only in connection primarily with the people of Israel. Yes, there were some forerunners in the Old Testament, but it wasn't this worldwide outpouring like we see at or saw a see at Pentecost. And so the promised spirit wasn't just for the Jews. The promised spirit was for the new covenant. The promised spirit was for the New Testament. The promised spirit was for the new Israel in the Lord Jesus Christ. It extends to the Gentiles. Even in Galatians chapter 4, and Galatians 4 is ripe with blessed covenant redemption language. When he says, in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son, the mission of the son, to come down to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. So you see that God father sends the son is born taking on human flesh and then the holy spirit he goes on to say and we having received and because 
we have received the adoption, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. You see the mission right there in Galatians 4 that applies not just to the Jews, but very clearly in Galatians 4 and Ephesians 1 to all those to whom the Father gave the Son. And all those to whom the Father gave the Son, of them there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Of them there are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And those who believe can be assured that they have the seal of the Holy Spirit. And John 80 highlights a lot of this mission-type language. I know that's sometimes hard, but it's very important when we consider the Trinity. Edie says, and he is the Holy Spirit, not as if the sanctity of his character were more brilliant than that of father and son. It's not as though the father doesn't sanctify. I mean, Jude talks about how the father sanctifies, right? When we consider specifically the mission of the son, it is to sanctify. He goes on to say, but because of his economic function, that is working in time and space. As the sanctifier, we have the Holy Spirit, the sanctifier, who indwells us. And when we consider going back to verse 3, he says the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. When we consider who the Spirit is and what he does and the benefits that he gives, we must consider them in relation to this triune work of God and all that we need to stand before God. So, brethren, what do we need? We need a changed heart. We have a changed heart in Christ, but who gives us that changed heart? The Spirit. We need to turn from our sin and repentance, don't we? We need to believe on Christ, don't we? Those are gifts, and Paul will go on to talk about, we'll talk about faith, especially in Ephesians 2. Justification is a spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, isn't it? Adoption, he talks about that in in the first uh, verses three through six. When we talk about sanctification, our Christian walk, who strengthens us with might? Who helps us as we pray? Who encourages us as we press on? Is it not the comforter who Jesus pours out for his church? I'm going to go away, but I'm going to pour out and send another to come, as Jesus says in John 16. You see, the blessings and benefits of the Holy Spirit are not the extraordinary gifts. Tongues, prophecy, you know, healings. I don't care if someone, you know, says something or makes things levitate. The more blessed thing that the Spirit does are taking dead sinners and making them alive in Christ and giving them all that they need based upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that, don't let anybody tell you that reformed people are not the people of the Spirit. Because when you look very clearly at what the Holy Spirit does in his operation, we must recognize that it is the saving of sinners and giving them all that they need to stand before God. All that they need based upon the finished work of Christ. It's what we call the order of salvation, how the Spirit works. And all those benefits, if you've believed on Christ, you have experienced them in one way or another. Now, sometimes our testimonies are a little bit different, how God led us to salvation, but did he not change our heart? Did he not give us the gift of repentance? Did he not give us the gift of faith? Did he not do all those things? Has he not then justified us already in Christ? 
in the heavenly places? Are we not adopted as according, uh, uh, based on a Galatians chapter four? We have all these things now, dear brethren. We have all these benefits now, dear brethren, that God has given to us in Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. The comforter, the sanctifier, the one who is our seal, that Holy Spirit of promise. And what this ought to do, dear brethren, is to give us great assurance and hope in the present. I think sometimes we can rag on our sin. And brethren, we are sinful. There's still remaining corruption. We're terrible. I get all that. I'm ragging again. We must remember who we are in him. And Paul is going to go on and talk about in the application section of this book, who we are in him, namely the new man in him. If you believed on Christ, even in your sanctification, even in your struggles with remaining sin, and yes, we must put to death sin day by day, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that can never change. We can grieve the Spirit, certainly, but the Spirit can never be taken away from us. And the Spirit is the one who strengthens us with might in the inner man, Ephesians 3. The Spirit is the one who helps us in our prayers, Ephesians 6. The Spirit is the one who is with us when the Word of God goes forth, Ephesians chapter 4. And your identity in Christ does not change. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And this ought to give us great assurance and encouragement. Ryle's got a great lengthy quote on assurance and ought to give us great comfort. And what I mean by assurance is we can separate, but certainly connect faith and assurance. Saving faith is sometimes not always assured that one is saved, but if one is concerned about their salvation, that's probably a good thing. A godly person can go throughout their entire life never feeling assured. Thankfully, saving faith can still make an enemy a friend with God. It may not move mountains, as Majin says, but it is still saving faith. But assurance is something that people can lack throughout their life. But Ryle says this, assurance goes far to set a child of God free from his painful bondage of fear and doubt, and thus ministers mightily to his comfort. And my emphasis with the spirit here is to highlight we've been assured that we have the spirit. It enables him to feel that great business of life is a settled business, the great debt, a paid debt, the great disease, a healed disease, and the great work, a finished work. And all their businesses, diseases, debts, and works, then by comparison, small. In this way, assurance makes him patient in tribulation, calm under bereavements, unmoved in sorrow, not afraid of evil tidings, in every condition content, for it gives him a fixedness of heart. It sweetens his bitter cups. It lessens the burden of his crosses. It smooths the rough places over which he travels. And it lightens the valley of the shadow of death. It makes him always feel he has something solid beneath his feet and something firm under his hands. A sure friend by the way and a sure home at the end. Christ has promised he will never leave us or he, uh, God has promised he will never leave us nor forsake us. Christ has promised he is with us till the end of the age. And he is with us by the power of the Spirit. May we take great comfort in this, brethren. If you believe on Christ, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise.
So that's the seal of the Spirit. Let's then look secondly at the down payment of the Holy Spirit in verse 14. The seal encourages us and reminds us of what we have now. Certainly guarantee does that as well, but the guarantee has a much more forward focus. And so notice we see in verse 14, describing who the Spirit is for us. Who is the guarantee or the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession? And the language and imagery of down payment is exactly how it sounds, especially when you consider the down payment on a house, right? You make a down payment with the hope you're going to pay in full. Well, God gives us a down payment of the Holy Spirit now that he will pay in full when Christ comes again for us. And this is what we call when we talk about eschatology, the already and the not yet. So we call the inaugurated and the consummated. We have already experienced the already. We are waiting for the not yet. The new age has already dawned and been inaugurated. We're waiting for its fullness to come in or waiting for it to be consummated. John Edie again says the holiness he creates is still imperfect and is surrounded and often oppressed with remaining infirmities in this body of death. And the happiness he infuses often like gleams of sunshine on a dark and cloudy day, faint, few, and evanescent. But brethren, as we walk those cloudy days, it doesn't change the very fact that A, we've been sealed, and B, we have the Holy Spirit as that down payment that, that we have the hope that awaits the people of God. The Holy Spirit has been given to us both as a seal, but also as a promise of the future. And if we consider, as Voss says, the Holy Spirit as the agent of new creation, it teaches us that now we are the people of the new creation, and we long for the fullness of the new creation. Even he, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. Now, brethren, if you're like me, I don't always feel like that, do you? Do you always feel like you're the new creation? Do you always feel like everything's great all the time? Do you feel like everything? No, but that doesn't change this very promise. The down payment has been given. The spirit has been poured out. The spirit indwells, and we have him as that most blessed down payment. And brethren, too, when we come to gather as God's people, this, in a lot of ways, is a glimpse and foretaste of heaven, what it will be like, what home shall look like as we make our way to that blessed celestial city. Christ, as he says in Luke 2, has given us the Lord's Supper as a sign, as we await his coming when we shall eat with him when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. But notice the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of that purchased possession. God has purchased for us something far greater than we experience even now, dear brethren. Something far greater than we could ever imagine, as he says, would happen in the church in Ephesians chapter 3. And what these future blessings do is they ought to strengthen our assurance. This life is hard. This life is difficult. This life is full of pain and sorrow and suffering. But there is a blessed assurance that awaits. And we have the Spirit already as that blessed down payment of the, uh, the inheritance that shall come. And even the language of people as a possession, speaking about those who have been sealed and set apart by God, 
has a very clear or very uh, yeah clear Old Testament allusion. The Old Testament people were called what? The people of God's possession. The Old Testament people were given an inheritance, an earthly inheritance, but all those things pointed to something and signified something else. Just like in 1 Peter chapter 2, he talks about how you, the church, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Even here, the language, again, following in line of what he is doing in Ephesians to bring Jew and Gentile together in Christ, who is that blessed temple. Also showing, again, that the church is that purchased possession. The church is to whom, uh, whom Christ gave his, himself for, Ephesians chapter 5. He has purchased a people and given them this blessed eternal possession that awaits And the beautiful thing, too, is Christians, or the way the language seems to indicate here, Christians are that possession that Christ has won. Christ came to die for his people. Undeserving, wretched people that have been given to him as a kingdom, dear brethren. We don't deserve to be in the kingdom of Christ, but that's exactly who Christ died for, that he might bring his kingdom in. And when we talk about bringing his kingdom in, we really mean A, the salvation of souls, and B, the fullness of Christ when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. If we were to take the idea of eschatology and maybe not redefine it, but put it in its proper understanding, that's a lot of times we refer to eschatology as the study of the last times. That's true. That's what it exactly means. But what do we mean by the last times? And so often when I say eschatology, sometimes people are like, please don't talk about that. But when we think, consider eschatology, a lot of times we think about helicopters and raptures and a thousand years and that sort of thing. That's what we call cosmic eschatology. But we cannot forget the personal eschatology, dear brethren. We cannot forget the fact that when the old covenant people were looking ahead to the last days, they were looking for the days of the Messiah to come. And the days of the Messiah were signified by that most blessed outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so, brethren, when we consider eschatology, consider this very fact that you're an eschatological people in Jesus Christ as the new man. And when you and I live our lives as God's people, we're living an eschatological life now as we await Christ's return. I do believe the last days just simply refer to the time between Christ's first and second coming, or the millennium refers to the time between Christ's first and second coming. The last days just refers to the time Christ's kingship and reign is inaugurated unto forever. That's what it is. And again, the whole book unpacks what this means for you and I as the people of God, who we are in Christ, what Christ has won for us. We've already been redeemed in him presently. Ephesians 1, 7, we long for the future. Ephesians 1, 14, but also 4, 30. Bruce says redemption is already theirs through the sacrifice and death of Christ. But one aspect of that redemption remains to be realized. Fullness. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, uh, no more sin. We long for that fullness to come in. But now, dear brethren, we are being prepared for that very thing. 
That's what church is, isn't it? Preparation for heaven. That's what sanctification is by the spirit. Preparation for heaven. That's why when we call uh, one another, the word calls us to live holy lives. It really isn't try harder, although we you know, perhaps sometimes could work a little harder, but it's not necessarily try harder, but it is if you're in Christ, if you're the new man in him, live as you already are in him. That's why he says when it comes to prayer, that we be strengthened with might in the inner man by the power of the spirit. That's why he goes on to talk about praying in Ephesians 6 with supplication in the spirit. That's why he says, again, with this new life, Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24, especially what we once were, what we are now, the old man has been put off, the new man has been put on, not saying we don't have remaining corruption. Certainly that is there, but the language I do believe of Ephesians 4, 20 through 24 is you're already the new man and have put him on. And verse 24, that you, uh, that you put on the new man, which was created, sorry, verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of mind. Be renewed, I think there should be a capital there, that the work of the spirit in our minds to enlighten our hearts. How is it that we know more of God by the power of the spirit? Again, capital S in Ephesians 1.17. That the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that our eyes might be enlightened, that we might have a greater understanding of who he is, that we might have a greater understanding of the riches of his inheritance. We might have a great understanding of his power. And how does he do this? Certainly it's the same God who works all things, but once again, it is the power of the Holy Spirit. So brethren, as you live your life now, you are the new man in Christ. And you are the new man who's been sealed and been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment and guarantee of what Christ has purchased for you when he comes again. We are the new man in him. We have, been, we have that eschatological life now that we live as the kingdom comes in as the new creation people living by the power of the agent of new creation. How can we not then praise God? How then can we not say, as Paul says in verse 14, to the praise of his glory? There's a reason throughout this section, blessed be, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. When we consider all that God has done, how can we not, as created beings, how can we not, as redeemed beings, praise his holy name And do so with the knowledge and the assurance that we have the spirit to strengthen us when we give those said prayers and praises. Brethren, our prayers and praises in our own strength are very feeble. We have the spirit to help us and strengthen us in that blessed Christian walk. We ought to praise. We ought to honor. We ought to be sanctified by the power of the spirit. God really is preparing us for heaven. That's the Christian life. That is the Christian walk. As Ryle says, sanctification is that which makes us ready for heaven, prepares us to enjoy when we dwell there. 
We have the armor of God to help us press on in that difficult life. And I pray for myself and for all of us that we would be assured of these things as we press on. The confession as well is very applicable with this. It has a whole section on assurance. But in paragraph three of chapter 18, as we consider all that God has done, all that Christ has done, our assurance is found in the finished work of him in the power and work of the triune God. He says that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience to the proper first fruits of this assurance. So far is it inclining men to looseness. When we consider all that God has done, we consider all that we have in him, and we consider who we are in him, should we not then seek to honor him, glorify him? And really, he, again, unpacks what that looks like. Don't lie. Don't be angry. Don't play, have place for the devil. Don't steal. Work hard. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't be bitter. Don't be wrathful. Don't be angry. Don't clamor. Don't speak evil. Let it be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Walk in love. Walk in wisdom. Walk in the light. If you're married, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Bond servants, be obedient. All those things are what, how the new creation people ought to live in this world in light of the fact that we are the new man in him. We do so in his power and in his strength as he has given us men after he led captivity captive, he gave men to help us in our Christian walk, to preach the word faithfully, that we might be equipped, sorry, equipping the saints for their life, that pastors might engage in the work of ministry, and that God's people might be built up in these blessed things. You see, all of that, all that God does for us ought to be very practical. That's why our confession says the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him. Father plans, son accomplishes, and the spirit applies. And we need great comfort that we have these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, that by his grace we can bear spiritual fruit, albeit not perfectly until the new heavens and new earth. All these things show forth the blessed work and the mission of the spirit when it comes to the people of God, namely his application in our lives. And brethren, he continues to work. He continues to work in your life. He continues to save sinners and draw them in. That is the blessed work of the power of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. It really is a triune work of God to bring about the redemption of his people. And as always, if you're not in Christ Jesus, the language there, how he does this is clear. After you heard the word of truth, in whom after you believed, there's the word of truth, Christ lived, died, and rose again. Believe upon him, and you shall be saved, and you shall have the blessed promise of everlasting life. You shall be sealed with the Holy Spirit 
and have the spirit as a guarantee and have the promise of everlasting life. If you do not, you do so at your own peril. Believe on Christ and you shall be saved. And brethren, we ought to praise God for his work of redemption for his people. Well, let us pray. Lord, our God, it truly is a great mystery when we consider all that you've done for us, when we consider who you are in your being and who you are in your operations in time and space, that you do not change even though you work in time and space, and even the fact that according to your eternal, perfect love, that you decreed to save sinners in Christ, and we're thankful, O God, for the blessed revelation by way of this blessed covenant Thank you that the Father plans, thank you that the Spirit applies, and thank, or that the Son accomplishes and the Spirit applies these things. Thank you, O God, for those that are in Christ. We have been sealed, but we have that guarantee of the Holy Spirit, that promise that awaits, O God, but we're thankful we have that agent even now. We're thankful, O God, that we've been changed and been saved, and we ask by your Spirit and by your might and by your strength that you would strengthen us with might. You'd help us as we pray to press on with the armor of God. You'd help us, oh God, to be lifted up and encouraged by your word, to continually hear it and be enlightened by it and better understand what it has to say, oh God. Again, please forgive us for all of our sins, and we're thankful for the assurances and promises that you give us in your word. And please forgive us for the times we grieve your spirit. We ask, oh God, that you'd help us and be encouraged that we shall not lose the spirit as your people. And so we ask, O oh God, that this would give us comfort and strength as we walk this world. Sanctify us, preserve us, keep us until the end, O oh God. And we long for that fullness to come in when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. And we long for the consummation, O oh God, that we might know the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. May we know these things, O oh God. May we believe them now. And may we, even though we believe by faith now, may we see them by sight uh, when Christ comes again. Thank you for all your encouragement. Thank you for all your assurances. Be with us now as we come to the supper, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.